everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hello. Today on the show, we are continuing our Jim Jones psychological discussion. So this would be the fourth episode in this discussion. Of the Kool-Aid man. Of the Kool-Aid man. Oh, God. <laughs> Gross. Awful. Kool-Aid. Awful. I mean, that was a fun commercial. Jim Jones ruined it. So welcome. Welcome to episode four of the Jim Jones psychological discussion. Next week, we're going to do episode five and then maybe take another little break. If you want to go back and listen to one, two, and three, unlike many true crime shows, you know, I do attempt to go a little bit deeper into the psychology and history of whoever our series focal point is, you know, Manson, Kuklinski, and Al Jones. Like we've done so many of these. I mean, that's our specialty psychology. So we try to get a little bit more into it. And because my orientation and the way I approach the work is very much rooted in family dynamics and relational dynamics. I definitely tend to draw out and pull out and go a little bit deeper into pretty much like everything that happened before they grew up, (laughs) like everything that happens until they're a young adult. I'm imagining, you know what, I could be lying to myself, but I'm imagining once we are done with episode five. He will be a grown up, and then things will be a little bit different in the way I talk about them. But maybe not because at that point he gets into a relationship, and then there's a wife and, and mm-hmm. kids, and he adopts everybody. And there's a lot of dynamics with this guy. So that's probably one of the reasons why my whole life he's been pretty fascinating to me. Is I think pr- even prior to the psychology career dynamics and cult leaders and how that works has always been a fascination of mine. Yeah, I think with these cult leaders, because you've done, is this your second or third one? I don't know. It's really robust because there's so much, not just with their individual psychology, but then the collective and everything that they, you know what I mean? Because Manson, I would consider him a cult leader. Absolutely. Obviously, Jim Jones, and I can't remember if you've done one other, but these are really, really robust because there's so much to include in the buildup of what they create. They create a a commune. Yeah, I just really feel like the cult leader is unlike the serial killers that we know and research in our culture. I feel like the cult leaders have this. I, I personally, and maybe some of you, just really feel that it's a rich journey to see all of the psychodynamics and the relational bits and pieces that create that personality that does that specific thing. Mm-hmm. And although we, the media shows a lot of them nowadays, that wasn't always the case. And I feel like the ones that were happening in the sixties, seventies and eighties have the full, we have the full story, like their cult leadership went into its ultimate demise. Mm-hmm. Right. And we've talked about certain contemporary cult leaders. We've got talking about, talked about Waco. We've talked about some other ones. We didn't do a deep dive on him, but it's just different because it ha- doesn't have that arc. And so I feel like from a research perspective, we have this ability to go back and do and look deeper because there has been so much research done. You know, I'm not Jeff Gwynn and going and doing all of this intense research, but I very much appreciate people like him. He wrote uh, this book, The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple, that is really good. And there's a couple other books that I've read. And then also the 
Los Angeles, New York Times, like the articles that are from that time are also really interesting. And there are people that are still writing about this because it is relevant to our day to day in the cult leaders that we see operating in our world now sure. that haven't come to any kind of a point where there's been a mass murder at this moment in time. Mm-hmm. And so just seeing those qualities in others. So if you have not listened to the first three episodes of our Jim Jones discussion, check those out as each episode has more history of Jones's parents and childhood, as well as our, our basically building a psychological profile along the way. Mm-hmm. So to recap, Jim's mother at this particular point, Jim is basically a kid to a preteen. Jim's mom is exhausted, entitled, eccentric, unhappy, unpopular, and pretty controlling at this point. Uh, We know these things about her. We might say that she's more on the narcissistic side of peoplehood. So having a narcissistic mother, that's a thing. Jim's father was a war veteran. He was seen as very unsuccessful by his family, and now he's very ill. Uh, He's barely able to work uh, occasionally on the railroad by this point. He's got huge long problems from from the war. And he's mostly seen sitting on his porch at the local, you know, at or at the local pool hall playing cards and drinking soda. They didn't actually serve alcohol in this in this Quaker town in those kinds of places, although we'll get to that later because there's some suspicions about drinking later. Jim is now in school. And if you remember from the other episodes or if you maybe have just gone back and listened to them, Jim is now in school, meaning first grade, meaning his mom has to get a job because remember that was the deal. The family would take care of her and little Jim and big Jim until, uh, Jimmy, uh, Jim jr. Was of school age. And then they said, then you got to get a job. (laughs) You got to contribute at that point. We'll help you till then, but we are on to you. (laughs) Mom had to get a job. Mom got a job at a local factory, which she felt of course was far beneath her skill level, except no one else would hire her. So Okay. So her cries of, you know, persecution and unfairness and victimhood uh, were Mm -hmm. frequent rants that everyone got to listen to, especially Jim Sr. and and anyone who would, you know, stand by her any moment. Of course, she was being persecuted and no one understood and all of that. Always the victim. And so she's working all the time. But here's the thing, like Jimmy, Jimmy, Jim Jones, you know, Jim Jr. is unable to go home unless his mother is home. She makes this rule that he can't be in the house without her. And she was working a lot. And they don't go to church. And in fact, they are probably the only family in Lynn, Indiana, who does not seem to go to this Quaker church. So it doesn't go unnoticed, Mm -hmm. right? They're eccentric. But... As we know, you know, with most hometown eccentrics, they become a part of the landscape. So it's not like everybody's freaking out and dramatic about this forever and ever. It's like, that's the Jones family. You know, that's the, that's Jim and Lynetta. They're a little bit off. They don't go to church, but whatever. But, you know, with Jim Jones Jr. coming of age and starting to be a part of the community, because he's left to his own devices. But that was very typical of boys in that time 
of being able to sort of like run amok. Like they just did their thing. They were, you know, a lot of the youth were working on farms. They were, it was, you know, you got independent really early. You know, the community was starting to figure out that he was probably a lot weirder than his parents, which they didn't think was possible. Because Jimmy has now already begun to make up stories for sympathy, just like mm-hmm. his mom, you yeah. know, and take on the personality of being special, right. just like his mom. And of course, his mom is reinforcing that by telling him he's fabulous and a god and, and doesn't have to subscribe to any of the culture's laws either. He can do whatever he wants. So she believed that she had special powers and that her son was a god. And I mean, it's hard not to believe your own mom when you're a kid. You know, you 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 believe them. Whatever they say or do is the right thing. Even though his relatives' homes were open to him, he chose to wander around looking lonely and helpless. So there was this big extended family that Jones has had. And so he could go and play with his cousins. He could do a lot of things after school, even though he couldn't go to his own house. But what he chose to do is walk around gathering sympathy from the town. Okay. He chose to be alone and tell stories and, you know, develop some interesting habits. So he was very polite and overly grateful for any kindness. So it's like if he rolled up to your house and you were baking a pie and you're like, oh, Jimmy, come on, Sunside. I know you don't have anywhere to go. Let me get you some pie. Go, oh, ma'am, that's so great. Blah, blah, blah. You know, he was just he the most that grateful. charm <laughs> very early. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Overly grateful for every kind of like full meals and snacks in others' homes. Every day he's in somebody else's house just gathering up all the goodies, you know. He would share his interests. He would... If, if you were into flowers, this is literally a kid that's like six, seven, eight, nine, ten. If you were into flowers, he was into flowers. He would ask you questions and talk about it and ingratiate himself. Or if you were into animals or handicrafts or even airplanes, there was a, there was a family that was into airplanes and he had a whole thing for several years where he was really into airplanes and that's all he ever talked about with that family. Was he really into airplanes? No. Not really, but he was a kid also. So there's a part of you that's like, oh, well, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Yeah. Like He's a kid. They, they change their interests all the time, but I don't know. It bears out. So then there's this local woman named Myrtle, and she was an extreme Nazarene. And I talked about in the last episode a little bit about this, about how, okay, so where's the religious influence? Because mom and dad are like, nah with the church you know mom's like nah that's interesting you know mom's not gonna buy into something like that she's not gonna she's looking to be an outsider and she's also looking to control things and the church can feel very controlling to someone like that so Mm -hmm. she's gonna kind of reject reject any sort of outside control of her behaviors Mm -hmm. considering how she grew up which we went over all all of that in in episode one if you're interested This local woman, Myrtle, felt it was very shameful that he wasn't in church because that was the culture. It's like there's this kid. He's the only kid who's not going to church, and it's because his parents are awful or whatever. So she would take him in, you know, probably give him pie and milk or whatever, and she would preach to him. And so he began quoting scripture from her. And she validated him for this. At one point, he started calling her mom. She felt he had Nazarene potential. You know, he, he's got another female older, you know, obviously a mother figure female telling him that he has a lot of potential. 
she sees him. Yeah, like you're great. Like you're quoting script because remember he's a mimic, so he's gonna like if you like flowers, he's gonna talk about flowers. So you are into the Nazarene church and preach to him. He's going to begin quoting scripture to you. He's going to take that in. He's, he's looking for attention and sympathy and mirroring. God, it's, I was just about to say the mirroring is to think how that was just all survival for him. Yeah. Right. And then something that he adopts because it's so reinforced. It's like, this is where he was first seen. This is where he first developed a purpose. This is the first time in his life where he said, Oh, there's, although he, you know, the sense of self thing is, is questionable, but this yeah. is where he first felt like he could get some positive reinforcement because anything he had done up until this point, his parents were really absent, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, mom would just float him full of, you know, shibusiness. Right. You know, mom would just tell him how great he was and, but it, but it lacked, it lacked depth. Yeah. So. The mirroring that we get as babies, you guys, babies is where mirroring comes from. Mm-hmm. And because if you remember, she didn't want to have a baby. She only had a baby to get money and sympathy from her husband's family so they would take care of them. Right. So you can God, imagine. knows that. They feel that. Yeah. And you can imagine that she was not an attentive mother when he was in the crib. And that's when the mirroring happens. Those first couple of years when we make faces at babies and we mirror their emotion and we go to them when they're crying and all the different things. He didn't get that. So now he's six, seven, eight, nine, whatever. And he's looking to be mirrored. And this is what we know about treatment with narcissists is when they're ready and they're, and they are looking for that treatment and help is mirroring is the thing they can't tolerate. They can't tolerate sitting with you and having you mirror their emotions. It's so distasteful. They're so not used to it. And they rage out at you because Mm. they can't tolerate simple mirroring that we give babies. So the, the rupture, the dynamic rupture is so early that it's unconscious and it's pre-verbal. And this is what I believe Jim was suffering from at that moment. And that that often causes a, a narcissistic personality issue. So and it's interesting though, because they'll mirror you to get their needs met, right? Yeah. But they unconsciously. can't. They can't stand it back. Yeah, That's unconsciously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They just. It's just they just don't know that. They don't mm-hmm. know that intellectually, even though they're the smartest people on the planet, mm-hmm. as they'll tell you. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, they uh, will tell you. But we know better. They don't make mistakes. <laughs> Sadly, I can sit there and know better. Yeah. <laughs> so Myrtle, she preached to him, saw potential in him, believed he was not lying about never having food, even though he was being fed by everybody in the neighborhood, but he would come by and she would feed him and they would talk church. And she began to take him to church on Sundays because no one else was. Jimmy's family didn't believe in that or his immediate family didn't believe in that. And you know what? Lynetta, his mom, didn't care. She was tired and resentful. And, you know, half the time she ignored Jim Jr. And half the time she exalted him. It was the very definition of, you know, a very toxic relationship. She either a narcissistic relationship. She either ignores you or you are the focus of her, all of her attention. And if you've ever been in a relationship with a narcissist, that's exactly what it's, they're either ignoring you or they're so hyper-focused on you. You feel like a star. 
Oh yeah. And then they'll, they'll go back and forth between that. Yeah. So that's what she was doing with her son, which makes sense. What we know of him today, of course. So Jim started spending nights at Myrtle Kennedy's home with her and her preacher husband. Like literally he just started being a part of their family And, you know, Lynetta's view, you know, she didn't believe in religion and she didn't believe her son would be duped by Myrtle. (laughs) This is that narcissistic extension. Mm -hmm. But her beliefs, Mm -hmm. you know, she so she mentioned it frequently to Jimmy to make sure he wasn't being duped. Mm -hmm. Here's what Jim is caught in. He's both actually attracted to the church and the and all of the attention he's getting and the oratory skills and the control that that gives you and he's watching preachers and it's getting him this mom figure and then he's going home and saying to his mom, "Oh yeah, I don't believe any of that. Like I I got this because he's wanting to please his mom." So he's cre- it's it's literally creating the religious split inside of himself mm. like in a very concrete way the way i'm saying it i'm sure it was much more vague than this the way i see it objectively is that that creates a split you're you're pleasing this one by doing this and you're pleasing your primary caregiver who gaslights you and is a narcissist, you know, is only a narcissistic extension. And it's creating this split where you're telling one, yeah, no, I don't care about that. It's fine. And the other one, you're hook, line, and sink. It's just like, ugh. Right. At the age of like six, seven, eight, my God. So, but Jimmy really liked love church. He began to call Myrtle mom. Now the reasons why he loved church are going to be, you know, explicated later, but, but then, you know, Jimmy got curious about other churches because he wasn't just, he wasn't interested necessarily in the doctrine. Right. You know, and he wasn't buying the doctrine. And over the next few years, he joined a lot of churches. He was often like go to one church and halfway through the sermon, he'd leave and go to another, go to another church. He was just eating it all up. He was Mm. just like fascinated by the oratory gift that he felt he, you know, that people were giving him validation for. Mm. And then he was seeing in others. And he, I think he just, you know, he learned alienation from his mother but he had created this quality that he could make others feel that they had beliefs and hopes in common that he liked like he saw that in the church you know that community of having that like-minded belief system yeah he liked what they liked believed what they believed so he's observing how that's done and he's also going into homes and if you like flowers, he talks about flowers. So he's learning that way of rapport building is what we might call it. He obviously uses it for a lot of reasons later in a very unhealthy way. But it is kind of an average thing to, as a kid, learn to have conversation yeah. with people. And he becomes an excellent conversationalist later. Like that is what he's known for. And even being the eccentric kid, he turns into an adult. He's always known for being able to talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. Now that quality can be used to be a psychologist, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, the, the, or an, or an MFT where you need to like talk to people and, and build rapport and empathy really quickly. But we know that it it didn't turn out that way for him. Mm -hmm. Jimmy was able to keep Myrtle's affection, even though she felt hurt that he was church hopping. Like, obviously, she wanted him in the Nazarene faith and felt she'd, you know, preach that to him. And she felt hurt, but he'd wandered off the path. But she continued to dote on him. You know, he explained away the other churches as, as seeing the competition. Like, he just, you know, he just 
was like, oh, I'll tell her what she wants to hear. Mm-hmm. He conned and manipulated her, and until the day she died, he wrote her notes of his fantasized reality. Like, they had a relationship all the way up until she died, and he was just not coming from an authentic who he was. He was telling her what what she wanted to hear, and so you see, at mommy, mommy's saying, "Oh, I don't believe in any of that." And her, she, he's saying, "Oh, it's just scoping out the competition." I'm a Nazarene at heart. Da da da. He's always, always telling a lot. You just don't, because he doesn't have that sense of self, right? Yeah. He's borrowing it from everyone. He, which is incredibly typical of a yeah. narcissistic orientation, which he had developed very early on. Hmm. So, did he really like religion? I mean, later in the 70s as an adult, um, Jones would say he always used religion as a way to convert others to socialism. It was always like he never believed in God, that it was always a political agenda. But, you know, it's interesting because that goes along with what his mom wanted him to believe. And I also feel as if there must have been times when he was really drawn to having a black and white reality having a faith system that mm-hmm. tells you what's right and wrong. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think it's probably a lot of blend. I'm sure as an adult and in the seventies and when it all went to shit. Yeah, of course it was all a political agenda, but that's like revisionistic story. A six, seven, eight, nine year old. Yeah. He's just looking for attention. Yeah. But it definitely turned into that supply, right? Of Cause course. that's where he, like you said, whether he really was invested in the belief, I mean, to a certain extent, he probably was because of what that belief reinforced in him and what he was able exactly. to get through that. The mirroring, but right? The mirroring, but the I don't think it was really all that important to him to believe no. what he was preaching. No, 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 absolutely not. And the next episode, we'll talk about him as a teenager, and that becomes very apparent. Yeah. But I do feel like there was a trajectory. In other words, yes. by the time he's a teen, I believe that's true. When he's a preteen, and and I would say in in that culture in that day and time, six, seven, eight, nine is preteen because uh, you know p- kids were older with more responsibility then, and so and getting married really young, and so it's 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 a lot more spread out these days where you know kids often uh, young people don't often don't leave home till their early twenties now. It's very common, so that he sought so much attention that it wasn't about religion or politics, but about followers yeah. and attention and control. What a great place to find that. Oh my gosh. Like, cause people are looking for a leader. Always, you know, lost, hurt, traumatized people are always looking for someone to tell them how to feel better and what to do. And, and faith systems are there for to get you through those types of hard times and can be a protective factor and can be a very supportive environment if not distorted. But for him, it was much more about the attention. I mean, he is a self-professed attention seeker. Mm. Like he even said that about him. I was always seeking attention as a kid. Mm-hmm. I felt abandoned. I felt lost. I felt alone. I was a loner. I was always seeking attention. He says that about himself. So that wasn't a mystery. So just before we end this this chunk, I, I just want to tell a quick story. 
It kind of amplifies that. Like, so Jimmy had befriended this man, Max, and I got this story from Jeff Gwynn's book, The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones and the People's Temple, which is one of the sources I've been using just as a base for our psychological discussion. So Jimmy had befriended this man, Max, and the way he did that was by saying he wanted to be a pilot like Max. Like I said, he would go into homes, he would take a shine to one or both parents, and then he would ingratiate himself by liking whatever they like by mirroring. And they would go, but this one went a little farther. Like they would go out flying. Uh, this guy was really mentoring, um, Jimmy to be a pilot because the kid said that's what he wanted to be when he grew up. So one day Jimmy had gone missing for a few hours after wandering into the woods. That was like the last he was seen. And Max went out to look for him because he was worried of where he had gone. And he found him on a tree stump preaching in the woods about Jesus, like to mm -hmm. himself, like practicing. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy was really startled when he realized Max was behind him. And he actually fell off the stump and started crying and had a very dramatic reaction to this moment, like being discovered. And he cried. I mean, I think uh, the idea is that you know, the jig was up, meaning that the shame there for um, Jimmy was that it, he was discovered not wanting to be a pilot. Like he obviously wanted to be a preacher and was practicing in private in order to keep it secret. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like with Myrtle, he was going to other churches and then making excuses for it in order not to hurt her feelings and to keep her believing that she was his mirror. Mm -hmm. And with Max, it's like the jig was up and he kind of, you know, cried and cried and cried and talked about how I'm so sorry. I actually do really want to be a preacher and thinking that like he needed to, to, in order to have Max, it's kind of sad. It's like in order to have Max's attention and love he needed to like what Max liked. He didn't believe he could be himself and have someone else and have a caregiver care about him. And I think that's that mom. Yeah. That mom rupture is it's like mom needed him to be an exact mirror. That's, that's a narcissistic mother. Mm -hmm. When your parent needs you to be an exact mirror of you. And if you deviate from being a mirror, you don't exist and you get abandoned emotionally. And so what he believed in the world is with Myrtle, he had to mirror her with Max. He had to mirror her. And you go around exhausting yourself, mirroring everyone to be cared for. And so that's why, the, this is my, in my psychological opinion, that's why the major emotional reaction is that, oh my God, you're not going to love me anymore now that you know that I actually don't want to be a pilot. Right. And Max, you know, this is kids' logic. So it's like, this is that very youthful, budding, narcissistic personality issue of like, he wasn't sophisticated enough to to not have an emotional reaction in that shame moment because he thought he was losing this guy that he really cared about. But Max didn't care one way or the other. So the way Max handled it was, it's okay, man. 
Go mm-hmm. on, you could be whatever you like a like a healthy adult. Mm-hmm. You could be whatever you want. I still care about you. Mm-hmm. And so much so that later there are stories about how Jim Jones as an adult like saw Max or went back to Max and said, I just want to thank you so much for being so supportive of mm. me. So he had this reparative relationship with this guy because this guy was like not like his mom showed him everything he never had yeah not like his mom yeah and not like women myrtle yeah. and his mom who both were like no i need you to be who needed something yes from him. Mm-hmm. so i just thought that was a simple story and i know that when it's in the book and of course it's not written in a psychological t- context and that's what we're here we're here for is it's like that just said it to all to me. Like he's just yeah. running around and we see adults doing this, right? Like running around trying to mirror. And when you don't mirror, you're, you don't get any attention. So yeah. you learn, learn, learn to mirror. Or you either don't get any attention or it's met with humiliation, resistance, anger. That's right. All these other things. Yeah. That's right. So I wanted to end there so that we just have this sense of that. Mm. I think we now have a sense of, the narcissism just being kind of deeply ingrained sure. really early on. Yeah, wow. So, Ooh. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do next time. We're going to go Jimmy as a teenager. So we hope you join us on this psychological journey through Jim Jones's psyche. So thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of terror talk. My name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe, everyone. <laughs>